Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. I am Tyler Lambert. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Women's Agenda and I'm joined by my co-founder of Agenda Media, Angela Priestley, today. Hello, Ange. Hello, how are you? You did a great job of that. Thank you. (laughs) We are hot on the campaign trail of the election, which is very imminent now on Saturday. So we're going to be talking about what's coming up there, the launch of our Women Elect Tracker a couple of weeks ago and a few wins for women this week as per usual. Great. Thank you. So, Angela... What is your win for women this week? Straight in. I was about to say you are so hot on the heels of the election that you have travelled to Canberra. (laughs) I know. The heart of it all. 35 weeks pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know what happens all around the country, the election. You don't have to be in in Canberra. No, it's true. It's true. (laughs) Do you know, I did actually feel like I came to Canberra for a separate reason, not the election I should preface, but I do actually really feel drawn to Canberra during election time and being with my family who are very vocal about the election. So it's nice being here. It's cold and very sunny and I'm heavily pregnant, but it's nice. I also ran into Kevin Rudd at the airport earlier. Yes. So, you know, if that wasn't a precursor to everything else, then I don't know what else. And what happened when you ran into him? He was very very (laughs) friendly and lovely and charming. I can tell why he was such a popular prime minister back in 2007. And I actually remember going to the election campaign in 2007 when the ballots were being voted. Uh, the ballots were being voted? The votes, <laughs> there were some popular the votes ballots. were being counted. Wait, did you count the votes or what was your role in the 2007 campaign? The Kevin No, O'Seven. you can go to, I even forget where it is, hey, but it's this big election kind of campaign party thing where all the votes are counted and I was 17 and I went and it was really exciting and then he won in a landslide which I've never seen a Labor government do again so (laughs) we will see we're waiting to see what happens on Saturday obviously. It is a possibility on Saturday I'm not going to make any kind of predictions but uh it is a possibility, but it's also not a possibility. So. I think a landslide might be a little bit hopeful at this stage, but we will, um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like every seat is going to have a very different reaction at this point, and so it's really hard to consider the trends when you think about just how different some of the intentions and some of those policy issues are across those different seats across the country. When we look at the teal, I mean, you can't even look at teal seats and say they're all the same. They're definitely not. There's there's certainly different levels of popularity and anger and, and different issues at the forefront of voters' minds across those seats. So it's not like you can say there'll be a clear trend there or anywhere really. And one thing I do think is, and you see this in the polling results as well, is that there is this major turnoff from the major parties and I think that's really the story of this election and we're going to see how that plays out. I mean, I saw like, the, you know, the, the the vote for United Australia, the UAP is expected to be, you know, obviously tiny still, but then when, when you just see how much activity there is around that, when you can see that in your own electorate, when you can see how much advertising there is, when you hear the vox pops of people sharing what they say and who they want to vote for and why um, across different media platforms is what you think maybe that that kind of turnout will be a lot stronger than we think. But it's not surprising, is it? Like both major parties have 
turned their backs on very critical areas for a long time, especially, you know, around climate change. I think the inertia on that has really grinded the gears of most Australians. Like, you know, we all know what's at stake now and and we need to do a lot more. So it's not surprising. I'm actually, I actually am really holding out for a minority government. I know people really hate the idea of a minority government, but like, I just feel like it holds people accountable in the right way. And, you know, reflecting on Gillard's leadership, she managed to pass pretty much more critical legislation through that entire period under a minority government than anyone else. It's one of the most productive governments in decades and people forget that. And it's this weird kind of fear that hangs out. I don't understand where it comes from. I, I I don't know. Does it come back to, I don't know if you remember that that day that um, the independents kind of gave their verdict on who they would, whether they were going to run with Gillard or whether they were going to run with Abbott and we all had to sit there waiting for like 23 minutes while, um, was it Oakshot or Tony Wins? I can't remember which one of them gave this really kind of long, drawn out. <laughs> it was definitely Oakshot then. Was it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it just went on and on. And people are like, just, just say it, just say it. Because everyone was there like, you know, you've kept us waiting for days and days and days. We don't get to hear the result of the election. And it was almost like, that experience alone has turned people off the idea of independence and has created yeah. this entire kind of fear around what a minority government means. But um, even I actually heard Tony Windsor interviewed recently on that very issue and he was asked the question, you know, what would be your recommendation to independence if they do find themselves in this situation where they are a minority government and they kind of get this ability to kind of decide? And he just said, take your time, go through the issues, get as much information and input and feedback as you can and really consider what, yep. what you're going to do there. So, And certainly with the Teal Independence, that is what they are holding to at the moment. You know, none of them have come out conclusively saying that they're going to be backing one government or the other. And, you know, you, you hear Monique Ryan, you hear Allegra Spender, you hear Zoe Daniel all talking about the fact that they are really driven by policy. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, it's going to come down to that. I do think it's weird. It's a weird approach from Scott Morrison and Albanese as well, I feel, who are kind of saying that they're not going to even entertain the possibility of negotiations with the independents. I mean, I, I, I don't change their mind. Come. Of course they will, but like, I mean, what a weird thing to, yeah. to say. That is a very real prospect that they are going to end up, a hung parliament is a very real prospect. So I think it's pretty foolish to say at this point, oh, no, we're going to really hold strong to our position on this because they may not be able to. They may have to actually engage and negotiate, and I think that's no bad thing. Yeah, exactly. They might, they might find that they are very eager to engage and negotiate on that. And, I mean, it's just that thing. It's, it's we're sort of at a point now in not in this election cycle but rather a point now in history I think where you can get away with saying one thing and then turning around and giving a very different reaction when you're actually asked to to do that very thing later on so it's like what is being said and promised doesn't seem to necessarily hold yeah the further you go along so we'll see but one thing we can say about candidates running because we have gone and profiled all the women running across the major parties as well as across the Greens, UAP and One Nation and some of the other minor parties um, as well as independents including those teal independents is that well there's a high proportion of women running for those seats 
Um, we can also say that we didn't profile all the women running in the Senate, much to many <laughs> written letters and emails and comments on social media about how we'd forgotten to do this and uh, what a terrible thing. And we will try and do that next time. And if anyone wants to fund it, by all means, please reach out. We can make that happen. But um, I thought we did a great job just doing the lower house. So there's hundreds of profiles there. So I'll give you a couple of stats. These have shifted slightly because um, a couple of things changed, candidates changed, given us, you know, across uh, so many seats as well. There was a couple of fixes in here as well. But we're looking at just over 40% of the candidates running for Labor, female for the coalition. It's a lot lower. It's it's less than a third. It was at 27.2%. And that's a dramatic difference for a party that's trying to improve its standing with women. For the Greens, it's it's 47%, so it's still not at that 50-50 mark. The Teal Independents, 19 of 22 of those that are um, supported by Climate 200 are female. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we've noticed, and there's a piece on Women's Agenda about this as well. We haven't noticed it. There was there's research about this published and we've looked into that research, but is the serious trend of women being pre-selected for unwinnable seats, yep. especially, I hate to say it, but especially across the coalition. Yeah. Yeah, it's the glass cliff scenario Ooh. as it's being described. Well, is it a glass cliff? I know that we described it as that, but that's not really a glass cliff. That's like you, you don't even get to go you're not into even the cliff. Getting to the cliff. It's like you're at the bottom. <laughs> I mean, it, it's. I think a ceiling would be a better analogy, but like it's kind of pointless, isn't it? Or maybe you're getting practice. I don't know. Maybe you're training. Maybe you're on the stepper. You're on the glass stepper in the gym. Maybe next election you'll get put in a seat that might be half winnable. Yeah. Well, that is a optimistic <laughs> and kind way of looking at it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, um, so Ange, what's your win for women this week? Okay. So it'll be the landmark decision from the Fair Work Commission that came out on Monday. So basically that decision will mean that millions of Australians will be able to access 10 days of paid domestic leave if they need it. They can access that at the base rate of pay. So this is huge. This is what unions have been really pushing for for years. Um, we do know that a lot of Australians are covered by or work with employers that offer some kind of paid domestic leave. But there's so many Australians that, that totally miss out on that, especially if you're working for a, a smaller business, if you're not across those big firms that are being reported on on a daily basis, we can really track, you know, what kind of policies and entitlements that they're offering. But most of us don't work in those sorts of employers. So this is this is significant and I think it's a really, really great step forward. It's symbolic as well that it shows just how important it is that this kind of leave is actually funded and also the responsibility that employers have for stepping in and supporting people who might be victims of family and domestic violence. Yeah, and essentially they found that the cost to employers would actually be pretty minimal in most cases. So there is now a precedent that's set and as Michelle O'Neill, who's the ACTU president, said this week, you know, it's up to the next federal government determined on Saturday whether they decide to expand that paid leave to all workers under the National Employment Standards, which would cover an additional 8.44 million Mm. workers. So Mm. we will wait and see, but it was certainly historic and I think it's exactly where we need to be moving towards. Yeah, exactly. I mean, mean, one thing you might say that on top of this is it's one thing to offer the leave, but then, you know, workplaces also need to have uh, some kind of mechanisms in place to support those who need to take the leave. Because 
I think, and this has come up in some of the research and the work that we've done as well, is that people might have access to this kind of entitlement, but they maybe have no way of communicating that they need the access or it's just not clear the avenues that they can take or they don't feel safe to go and talk to somebody because maybe that organisation hasn't got the trained people in place or the helplines, what needs to be in place to support those people needy it but so that that's another aspect to it but at the same time I think like just the announcement itself just opens such a big conversation that is so important and it makes it happen and workplaces employers see their role in offering that yeah yeah absolutely what's your win my win because I can't stop talking Australian politics much to your dismay um is actually Tracy Grimshaw's amazing interview last night and I I really think that that was the best political interview I've seen this entire campaign and I think it's really important that that actually happened on a commercial network in some regard because you know that's not often what we see but she really held the Prime Minister to account on the things that he said and particularly his mea culpa last week around being a bulldozer and wanting to lead in a different way and saying that he acknowledged that there was an empathy gap potentially or at least one that was being perceived by voters. And unfortunately, the Prime Minister has kind of backflipped on those bulldozer remarks, even though he acknowledged last night in the interview that he has known for some time that that is his personality. (laughs) But he also doubled down in a very strange way on the fact that that was actually now a positive thing and it's been a really tough time, Um, we needed that kind of leadership and he really, when peppered with examples from Tracy Grimshaw about areas in which voters have been left kind of scratching their heads with him and, and really feeling like He wasn't showing the compassion that we needed at the time or showing the leadership that we needed at that time. He basically said that he wouldn't have done anything differently. Mm. And I thought one particular example Mm. uh, was particularly when he was talking about the Women's March for Justice and his conduct around that and his inability to actually go out and sit there, stand there, in solidarity with those women that were marching for justice on behalf of Brittany Higgins, on behalf of Grace Tame, on behalf of, you know, the hundreds and thousands of women who have, you know, considerable challenges in their life because of policy areas in this country that are not fitting. And also his later claims that those women that were out on the lawns of parliament were lucky not to be met with bullets. Mm -hmm. But no, the the Prime Minister said that he would uh, absolutely do that again. Um, But I just thought that, you know, Grimshaw really didn't hold back. She really wasn't going to let him just politics his way out of it. And I think we've seen too much of that. We've seen too many gotcha moments on this campaign trail as well. Like, you know, I feel like journalists are really kind of capitalising on that as their, their way of shining like a light on the floors of our leaders, but I don't really feel that that's where the problems lie. You know, I think we need to get deeper into, you know, where they're actually coming down on policy, where they're coming down on character. Um, And I don't think that that's been analysed enough. And I really give Tracy Grimshaw supreme credit for being able to do that. And it was the most uncomfortable I've seen Scott Morrison in 
an interview for the last, you know, few weeks. So because a big part of his base uh, watching that one, not I mean big part of his base probably weren't watching the one with Lee Sales on Monday. So um, which I also thought was a pretty um, poor effort from him. But what I do see, because you brought up character there and I totally agree, I'm like the gotcha moments are just, I think they're ridiculous as well, but I might say credit to some of the journalists that they wouldn't be asking them if there wasn't necessarily an audience for those stories and there is an audience for those stories. That the reality is that there is. So, but mm. come to the character, what I think was so interesting about the kind of backtracking on the bulldozer piece is that, well, first of all, clearly we've written these stories so many times is a lack of empathy and the inability to say sorry. Like he has never said sorry. He didn't apologise over the met with bullets comment. He makes comments like he regrets it. He never apologised to Christine Holgate. He never actually apologised um, over, you know, disappearing to Hawaii during the bushfire crisis. He never apologises. Occasionally he might express regret. The one time that I can pick up where he did issue an apology was where he made an accusation against um, News Corp mm. and that apology came very quick and swift and you can probably guess how and why. I mean, that's it sort of happened within hours and uh, we've we've documented that. We wrote that story. That's one thing. I saw it in this interview and I'm thinking, you're days out from the election, somewhere along the line, somebody has advised you that you need to soften things, that you need to maybe come up with the bulldozer bullshit and you need to come out with some kind of the real Scott, even though it never worked for the real Julia and hasn't worked and voters really don't like to think that they've you know, yeah, exactly. suddenly going to appear the magical person and that you're... Who is this you're, guy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been hiding this whole time <laughs> in Hawaii. Um, but this is where that, that piece is missing, that in this interview he's not able to express that apology. He, he wasn't able to say sorry even though somewhere along like days earlier he got told you need to soften things and then in this moment he's starting to walk back on the bulldozer comment and he's also kind of walking back on, well, saying outright that he doesn't have those regrets. Like why not? Like what would have happened if he said that, you know, on that day when I said that women were lucky to have not been met by bullets, what would have happened to him if he had said last night, yeah, you know what, I really wish I'd thought that comment through. It wasn't the right thing to say and I'm sorry. Would he have lost any, I, I, don't, I don't think so. It would have said, with anything, well, actually, maybe there was some truth in him saying that the real Scott is coming out and maybe this is what the real Scott looks like. I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. I know he's missing a fundamental point there and I, I actually think he's misreading voters in a big way and I genuinely also think that Albanese hasn't capitalised on that in the the best way either because I think he will be quite a different leader, you know. I mean, he has said that he will be a leader that never says that's not my job. But you saw in one of the debates early on when, when Morrison was asking him, you know, why he didn't agree with the term back the votes policy originally. And I just thought that that was such a key moment for Albanese to say, look, you know, I'm fallible, I'm a leader and... In that regard, you know, we can reflect on things and we can do things better. If I make a mistake, then I can actually, you know, take accountability for that and and move on from it. I don't think that he did it in the best way during that debate. and I don't think he's done it in the best way during the campaign trail. But I do think that he has shown very explicit signs of being a very different leader to Scott Morrison in that way. But it is obviously something that they're both quite scared about. You know, I think him... 
on Morrison's part, it is something that he's fundamentally incapable of, as you've just noted. Like saying sorry is just not in his repertoire of like I don't even think it like belongs in, you know, his lexicon. He doesn't know how to say it. But I think that they think that that exhibits weakness when really I think it does the very opposite. Mm. Maybe we'll talk about a couple of policies, but I do, I think, and I know that we've published that piece today from Michelle, Michelle Arrow, is that we haven't seen the women's issues kind of hit this campaign as much as we would have expected to, especially given the last couple of years where we thought that it would be a much higher priority. And that's from both the coalition and from Labor as well. It, it's just, I mean, Labor obviously had the package around care, which was quite early on. I would say that they are ticking a lot more boxes on women's issues than the coalition, but then it certainly hasn't been a particularly strong pitch, which is really interesting, uh, especially when, like you say, you know, there's probably a lot for Anthony Albanese to capitalise on and he's not taken that opportunity. And maybe they think they've already got the the women's vote and I think the yeah, all evidence is pointing to the fact that they've certainly got more of it than than the coalition and maybe they don't want to risk losing the male vote or something. I don't know. Well, I do think the fact that we tried to hold a women's only, well, not a women's only, a women's debate on the issues that matter with those portfolio ministers. So that was the invitation was extended to the Minister for Women, Maurice Payne. It was extended to the Greens representative, Larissa Waters, and also to Tanya Plibersek, who holds the shadow portfolio. I will say that Tanya Plibersek and Larissa Waters came back within hours of that invitation from Women's Agenda to say that they would be very happy to take part. Maurice Payne did not come back at all. I followed up with her office two days later only to be mocked um, about the prospect of Maurice Payne taking part in a debate like that. Uh, And apparently, you know, it was obvious why Larissa Waters and Tanya Plibersek would feel comfortable taking part in in a debate that was hosted by Women's Agenda because we weren't a platform that offered balanced journalism. So that was one thing. And then I followed up subsequently with Jane Hume, who is the Minister for Economic Security for Women. I heard back from Jane Hume's um, team very quickly that she wasn't able to, to make it. I also sent two emails to Anne Rustin's office and heard nothing back. So of the three women that could have taken part in a debate of that nature, with the leading online news site for women in the country that's actually run by women, uh, not one of them could do it. And I think that that is incredibly telling that they have just conceded that they don't have grounds, you know, in any of these policy areas. They know that it is a lost cause for them to try to win over women at this point. I think it's a huge missed opportunity on their part. I mean, we're talking about 51% of the population. Women aren't stupid. You know, we know where the gaps lie. And I think more than ever, women know where the gaps lie. Um, but the coalition just don't care to make an effort here. And I, I want to add something that gives, um, well, first of all, to say it was an excellent story and a valiant effort on your behalf uh, to um, uh, try and bring that together. And it's really disappointing that it didn't eventuate because 
certain like uh, some people whether or not they weren't able to or were told not to from somewhere higher up or whether or not they could see that it might be really tough to answer questions about the record and answer questions about some of the policy initiatives and there's a couple of good okay-ish things that from the coalition that we can point out I might say you know that there is the record spending on um on domestic violence services, uh, it's still not enough, but it's something. I don't know why it had to wait to this long in the piece to get there, but it's there. But then I might say that there's so much around that, like what is the point on aiming to fix this area if you're not going to consider some of the other areas that will ultimately contribute to higher rates of violence and higher rates of sexual harassment and workplace bullying and that sort of thing. So aside from your value in effort, because you, you brought it up, it's like the you know a new site for women, but also one that is 100% owned by women as well. And I don't think that we can point to other exa- examples out there. And here we are talking about, you know, women's entrepreneurship, which is a key, you know, pillar in the coalition's budget announcements and policy announcements around women's economic security is trying to push around women's entrepreneurship, women in leadership, women in STEM, that kind of thing. And here, you know, we hope to be kind of a bit of an example of that and just get rejected. The biggest rejection letter ever. (laughs) Not only that, get mocked at the same time. I know. (laughs) And that's another thing. I don't get that strategy and this isn't the first time and other media are getting this as well the ABC get to this to an extent too I don't understand why that is happening and I take back to when um Georgie Dent had the credible women uh comment after the 2020 budget was it the the post-covid budget in 2020 where you know she was told by a liberal staffer that no credible woman is attacking the budget in the way that she is so yeah yeah. No, that mm-hmm. was that was in the prime minister's office. Um, yeah. Okay, so it's, it's an interesting strategy from the coalition uh, to just yeah mock and ridicule, and and then subsequently come back and say that didn't happen, which is what I got. I got quite a few emails telling me that that conversation hadn't happened. Um, so I also got gaslighted by them. It was great. It was a great week. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think. That probably does us for the week, Ange. I mean, it's going to be, there's so much more to talk about. We know that we are on the precipice of, you know, this election, which has dominated our time and obviously dominated this podcast. So if anyone was not keen for political chit chat, I'm very sorry. But I think that there's no way of escaping it at the moment either. And who knows what happens next week? Next week. What will we talk about? No. Well, more of the same bullshit, I imagine. <laughs> there's plenty more. There's plenty. And there's actually really some really great stories that were published this week that um, I'm sure you're really proud of. I'm really proud of as well. So, Yeah. And just a reminder that you can go and check out any of our stories on womensagenda.com.au or get them in your inbox via our daily newsletter just before lunchtime most days, every day. Thank you.